we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hi, Sam. How are you going? I am exhausted, Hannah. It has been (laughs) a long couple of days since the review has dropped and the uh, commentary has been ongoing. It certainly has. And trying to read through all the bits of paper that, you know, I think um, between the review and the Disability Royal Commission, we're losing a few forests worth of paper over here. Yes, definitely. So we thought we'd break this into sort of two parts. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the reaction to the review or some some reactions and then when we can and we've been able to digest this a bit more probably in the new year we're going to talk a little bit more about what's actually in the review. So number one that we want to really get across to people is that these are all just recommendations and nothing is going to change tomorrow. So that's the very first thing. So Sam what have been some of your thoughts around as you've been reading the first bits of the review? I am excited to see what the future holds. And I just sort of like to put out there to urge caution in the industry, just to sort of have some calm and cool and collection about this because things need to change because we can't Otherwise, we're going to lose our ability to be able to provide supports as a whole. We're going to have systemic failure. So I think we just need to take a bit of a breath, have a chance to read and absorb, and it's Christmas time and New Year's. So, and then, yeah. But, yes, there's been lots of reaction, lots of good reaction, lots of bad reaction, lots of mixed reaction. I don't necessarily know where I stand on it yet. Um, I haven't fully been able to absorb it, but I think overreacting without considering everything is not a good thing. And at the same time, I think it's also important that people let the government know what their thoughts and feelings are because that's what they're going to be looking for in the next year or so is what people think and how, which will inform how they implement or not some of the recommendations. So it is important to a point to look at them really carefully and then address your thoughts with to the minister. Yeah, definitely. And there's lots of opportunity coming up. There's um, lots of things that the uh, local, federal and state governments will be bringing in. So Anyone that is sort of looking at this and going, oh, I see, I can see a, a void here, especially in those tier two supports, start talking with local governments going, I've got this program that's been really working, but I think we could do this on a wider version. It's it's creating a whole new market and it shouldn't be scaring people. It should be exciting people going, there's opportunities. Throughout COVID, um, the DSC had a very good uh, podcast episode that was talking about never missing a crisis. This is a crisis this, where the industry itself is now kind of in crisis. There's lots going on. There's lots of good providers that are struggling. There's lots of bad providers that are, are lingering around that are also causing good providers the inability out of a function. The marketplace is, is, is at a mess. So it, it's a, quite a good opportunity for 
any of those providers that are looking at their services going and sort of worrying what's going to happen next. If you've, if you've got a service or if you've got a function that's fulfilling a need, it's needed. So start having conversations with your local minister, your MP, start going down so you can say, this is what I'm doing for our local community. This is how I think we can do it better because we're starting to look at having, trying to support the all of the people with a disability, just not always on the NDIS, that we know those services aren't there so that we need to create those services. And NDIS providers are kind of in that in a niche point right now where they can have insight on some of those struggles, what could work, what hasn't worked, and come up with those solutions to start presenting to government to go, hey, look, we've been doing this, we see this need, we think this could actually work. Yeah, uh, look, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that a lot of us know, you know, what what we've struggled to f- find for our participants and gone, oh, I wish there was such and such a service. And so we've got an opportunity to create that. Yeah. So I, I can understand the hesitation and concern from people because, like, change has never been implemented well. <laughs> So I, I, I'm not concerned about the recommendation. More Pace of my, might, might be a good, a yeah, good indication. My concern is the implementation. Yeah. But if, if the providers and the people with a disability and us start stepping up to the table actively going, hey, look, this is a solution. We're, we've, we've had the chance now with the Disability Royal Commission, with this review, to express and to be heard mm. what our frustrations are. Mm. Who else better to lead the solution than the people that that live, work, breathe in this to support people with a disability mm. on the day to day than to come to the table and bring those solutions? I think it's a fantastic and an exciting time, but also very concerning. If we run too fast into this, it causes big problems. If state governments aren't coming to the table to coming to come up with ideas on how they're going to provide services. And there's also, I'm sure there's lots of things in the review that we haven't touched on that we'll be looking at soon, but yeah. yeah. I think one of the difficulties a lot of people are dealing with is that a lot of it was, a lot of the recommendations came as a shock. Yeah. There was no sort of, oh, this is what might be coming. It was totally came out of the blue. And so it has really scared people some of these recommendations that are are really pretty baffling. Yeah. And yeah, the it, the government's never been one for a soft release. <laughs> I I did have throughout the review and when some of the stuff was being released throughout throughout the last year, I did have some of that concern and especially with some of the conversation that was had um, from the chairs, from panelists, and in the media, I, d- I did have that hesitation um, that that would be a, f- a thing. But you're you're right; it, it has hit people in quite different ways. Mm. But that's kind of what the review was also meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things Sam I noted, and particularly that I noted Bill, our minister for the NDIS, talk about, was all providers becoming registered um, yes. and potentially needing to become registered, which is a concern to me because, on one hand, because registration is pretty cost prohibitive for a lot of people working in these roles, including me. It's it's one of the reasons I'm not registered because it costs too much to do. and. Yeah. Then at the end of potentially the next five years of bringing in these recommendations, if if they come in, there's no guarantee that then I would win a tender to be a navigator. So that's that makes a lot of it uncertain about, you know, mm. where do you spend spend your money? Yeah. So with the, the navigator and the registration points, there are going to be some very, uh, it's, it's not happening soon. So you, we're not losing support coordination next year. That's not going to happen because mm. it, all of this requires the, the tier two and uh, supports to be established. And, that, and that's going to take time. For for navigators to work effectively, the, need, the, the principle of a navigator is to supply what essentially is a support coordination function to every person with a disability 
regardless of them being on the NDIS or not. That is a fantastic thing that is going to create lots of jobs mm. and it's going to be like support coordinators are not going to go out of out of touch. Plan managers, plan managers that are out there at the moment that are looking at their, their current stability, job stability, these are jobs that you're going to be able to go into. You know your local area. You know the participants, you know the people, you know the support service providers, you know the other supports in the area. There's, there's that support that the navigators need. As I said earlier, my concern is implementation. So it, it's how it's going to be implemented, but there's lots of things that are prerequisites that have to be implemented and working before navigators can get implemented to start with. So it will be very much so over the next year, you can see a lot of panels, working groups, that sort of stuff being established to see how all this sort of works. Local governments are going to be starting to have to work quite extensively to be able to put this. This is a five-year sort of plan, not a two, not a one-year sort of plan. And as we haven't even taken started talking about the DRC yet as well. And that's quite a big implementation. So it, I will go out on the record saying I'm actually quite excited for navigators becoming a thing. I am concerned around how it could be, the implementation could fail for this. Mm. But for somebody that has seen people trying to get onto the NDIS, but not be able to meet eligibility criteria, telling them to be out that they could go to a navigator to find those other services that are established and, and that th th those services are actually readily available. That's an exciting thought to me yeah. because I see that happening too much. Sure. I wonder if there's a possibility that, you know, those services that you get from mainstream support could write a report saying, you know, for 12 months we've supported this person to do blah, 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 blah. Now they need way more or they've already need, they've always needed way more. Yeah. We think they actually should go on to the NDIS, you know, and I wonder if that also helps from, from that perspective. Yeah, and on, on page 37 of the review, so in figure two, they've got a proposed participant pathway. Hmm. And the starting point of that is to find out disability supports uh, are available. So the experience from a participant pathway is that mainstream services are informed and equipped to refer people with a disability to navigators hmm. and or the right information to help them to get the supports they need. Um, experience will be enabled by services will understand their responsibilities and be connected with the NDIS and foundational supports. Mm -hmm. so, so for all of this to sort of happen, that mainstream supports are a fundamental for all of this. There's lots of things that need to happen in terms of how health sector works, how education sector works, how early intervention sort of works from a bigger picture before any of these changes will actually come into place. So, which I think is needs should be the point for anyone that's super concerned is it's still going to take us a lot of time before any of this becomes a reality. And if you are concerned, you've got time to have your voice out there or come up with a solution as well to put out there. So I did want to say the flip side to the good part of what of everyone having to be registered is that people would no longer be able to seemingly just wake up in the morning and go, oh, I think support, being a support worker would be a cute job. You, you have to, mm. now you'd have to plan that sort of thing yeah, out. Yeah, and, and, and but so. it should be, it should be anyway. Like if, if, if. You should be, but they don't. Yeah, look, I, I have this conversation quite a lot in my consulting world with providers that have spent thousands of dollars and lots of time going it, it's uh, it's it's hard when you compete against people who just wake up and become a support worker the reality is is support workers and anyone that's deciding to enter a business needs to understand their regulatory requirements to start off with like that that's a given and if you're not you're failing the people you're supporting and quite frankly, I think that's where more of the vocalness of all this is coming from is people not wanting to really do the hard work to work in this industry and sector to start off with. This isn't a sector that you get to come in and go willy nilly. Oh, I want to become a support worker. We're dealing with vulnerable people's lives. I don't care how much sort of like 
effort that you have to go to understand, you need to do it. Like this is, it's, you're dealing with people's lives. You're dealing with vulnerable people. If you don't care about understanding what your responsibilities are as a, as a worker, as a provider, as a business owner, then I really don't think you should be in that position. Absolutely. So I, I am very, like, it, it, again, it's implementation. How is this going to be implemented? Uh, Minister Shorten did say that it was like, it wasn't going to be hard for a lawnmower to become registered. So to me, that's indicating there's going to be a big overhaul of the whole uh, registration process, what that looks like, what accreditation looks like, what the auditing process looks like. Mm. And I would also dare say that they'll be looking at capping some of these fees, how that's implemented, what sort of charges can be done because it has sort of been a very open market and it's been part of that hindrance for it. And that's been a big part of what the re review has reported in as a hindrance to getting registered. Yeah. So I would dare say that that would be quite a focus of any of this implementation, as well as also looking at the practice standards to go with the uh, whatever comes out of the DRC uh, when the government accepts those recommendations or may not. And the same with this review. I Talking about the Disability Royal Commission, I think one of the things that has made people so shocked about the review is some of the recommendations in the review are almost in direct opposite, you know, recommendation as the DRC. And people feel like we're almost watching a tennis match and our heads have swiveled <laughs> off, you know, because there was such a a massive 180 and it's just like, wait, what happened? <laughs> well, yeah, just in terms of that, there, there wasn't much time for the review chairs to be able to, uh, and the DRC hasn't been accepted in the first place. So the, the, the review wasn't tasked with dealing with that sort of point. They were given their sort of scope, the DRC. It's the government's responsibility now is to work to counter and balance both of those reports, work out there going, they're, they're both sort of, they haven't been accepted at the end of the day. No. So yes, they have, but it also doesn't necessarily surprise me because the chairs and the panel weren't in with the DRC and, and vice versa. Um, so they had very different approaches and method, methods to going about this and the review w wouldn't have necessarily been in a position to be able to look at any of those recommendations from the DRC to put to adjust their recommendations within the time frame they had. So I can I can understand where people are like, oh, this is such a big difference, but it hasn't been like haven't hasn't been accepted and that, that's but the the government will sort of work out work through that sort of disparity, I'm sure. And there'll be a lot more commentary around that by by um some more of those uh human rights advocates that are out there as well. So I'm sure we'll definitely find a solution for it or uh, there'll be a lot more noise to be had. Yeah. So we've doom scrolled the news to bring you some reactions and hot takes from across the web so you don't have to. Here are the key takeaways from the review according to the news media. So Sam, I'm going to start with um, theconversation.com.au. It says... The review identified challenges including greater than expected growth and unclear criteria for reasonable and necessary supports, which, which create complexity, stress, inconsistency and mistrust. Key recommendations include National Cabinet to jointly design and fund foundational disability supports outside the NDIS, navigators to help participants get the services they need, which We've, we've talked about that. Providers to be registered and compliant with new standards. We talked about that too. Needs assessments to gauge the impact of disability rather than lists of diagnoses for access. More consistent housing supports for people with disability. Disability support access for older Australians. So Sam, they've talked about the registration again and I was wondering if it's possible for you to sort of in a nutshell as quickly <laughs> as you possibly can can you explain currently the process of getting registered so sure um 
I don't think there is another way about this, but the, the fundamental idea is that once you've decided that you want to get into the supports or want to, you want to set up a business or, and get registered, you need to establish your policies and procedures and your, your, your fundamental paperwork as, as what you're meant to be doing as a provider. That's meant to happen first. Then you'll go put an application into the Quality and Safeguards Commission. You'll ex you'll do a self-assessment, which you'll attest to what you do and why, how you do it as to a part of the practice standards. Uh, once you put that through, you'll get your scope of audit and then you'll go off and select an auditor. They'll give you a, a bit of a date. You'll pay a varying amount of fees depending on the, your scope of audit, the amount of staff you have, the amount of participants you have. Um, all sorts of different things, uh, whether a new provider as well has a big impact into it, whether you're an established provider, and then they give you, you sort of do that, then you'll have your audit. So you have two classes of types of registration. You've got a verification or a certification. Certification is a full audit and a verification is just verifying the document. So it's just a des desktop audit, whereas in verification, you'll get observed by the auditor as to how you comply with your policy and procedure. They'll go off and do a report, send that off to the commission. Then it is a indeterminate amount of time. And if you have a uh, high risk support, so uh, high care nursing, high care supports, behavioral support practitioners, that sort of stuff, it will be a lot longer than whether or not you're just sort of doing core supports or if it's a verification for maybe a plan manager. Uh, once that uh, has gone through and you got the, uh, that's probably a, yeah, a very long time. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So it's, um, it's, it's fun. A fun time had by all. Yeah. I, I look, I love the, I, I quite I like it, but I, I do like the whole quality risk compliance audit paperwork sort of stuff. So it fits my, my niche quite well. Um, <laughs> Oh, your face has gone very sour. Um, <laughs> it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea, but it, it's it's a fundamental point to make sure we're keeping people safe. And it, it's not necessarily a bad thing either. Like it's not, it's, it's kind of like one of those teething little sort of things that we just need to do, get that done, and then we can get into helping people. But we need to have that fundamental starting point. Because if you don't have a document in place to capture the risks that the people are in place and you go off and you start providing supports with someone in the community and they have an epileptic fit and you're not trained in their epileptic management plan and you don't know what to do and you didn't know that they had epilepsy in the first place. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it, it's like, and I've seen it, I've seen this happen. Like I've seen people go off and do supports and then they have, there's something wrong and they're halfway through like, oh, you have what? I didn't know. But that's because we didn't ask the question. It's not the person with a disability's responsibility to list their whole medication history or medical history. We need to be asking questions to ensure that we're appropriately supporting the individuals that we are supporting. And if we're not asking the questions, then we're not doing our job and we're failing. That's what the audit, that's what the auditing and verification and registration is to make sure that we're doing because we see too many people just coming off the street. I'm a provider. But how much do you actually understand about it? Oh, I can do high care needs, but are you ready? Do you have you got training to do high care needs? No, but I can do it. No, no, that's what that's what registration's for. So, look, and and again, it's going to be a while before this all comes into place, and there's going to be lots of consultations. It's going to be lots of changes sort of happening. So it'd be like for providers that are already registered or thinking about registering, that's that's a uh, continue to be registered, of course, because then you'll sort of just progress into whatever uh, the NDIS 2.0 goes over. For those entering in the market, that's probably a decision that you need to have to take on personally, look at everything, really understand. If you've done the legwork and you're ready to go, by all means, don't stop. Mm. Maybe you can take, take some planning in place to look at what you'll need to do to adjust with the market as it goes. But if you're if you if you're doing the right thing and you know what you're doing and you're doing it well, then there's no reason to stop doing it. Uh, for people that are rushing into it because they're like, oh, cool, it's it's fun. I can work with people and make lots of money, and I can get more than I would if I'm an employer. That's not what the NDIS has been set up to do. That's a real risk for people, especially the independent market. Like it is a fantastic thing and it's really good, and I can't see that necessarily stopping. Mm -hmm. what it does need is some controls because it's a very cowboy area 
of the NDIS more so than some of the other bigger things that we've seen, I think, because it's also very un, there's no oversight in it or very little oversight. It's only when something drastically goes wrong that we really hear about it in that world. So, yeah. My concern though is that from my bit, from what I've seen, it's mostly been registered providers who have done the wrong thing. So it doesn't seem that registration equals not going to commit fraud. No, but at the same time, those stats don't actually count into, don't take unregistered businesses into into account. So when, when unregistered businesses aren't, like, they, if there's clear, concise instances of neglect, abuse, uh, fraud, then the commission will refer that on. But historically speaking, they don't take stats around non-registered providers. Well, that's silly because the commission is responsible for unregistered providers just as much as they are for registered providers. Well, yeah, so they take stats, but it's a lot to do around the money that's flowing in and out of people's plans. And like they will do do take incidents about it, but it's, yeah, it's a much different market. And the, the act doesn't apply the same because the act goes registered or unre- it doesn't actually apply to registered in certain situations as well. So it's, yeah, there's a bit there and there's lots of recommendations to change certain acts. There's lots of recommendations for, from as well from the DRC. Yeah. All right. So let's look at what The Guardian has to say. So they said, review into the NDIS scheme has found the critical lifeboat supporting more than 600,000 Australians with disabilities needs to be fixed to ensure its future sustainability for decades to come. As has been foreshadowed for some weeks, it is looking to governments to offer and fund more mainstream services for Australians with disabilities outside of the NDIS, describing the scheme as just one part of a greater system that has been lacking. The much-anticipated report recommended 26 changes alongside 139 detailed actions to fix the NDIS and how Australians with disabilities access support more broadly. So hang on, before I go on, I've just got a thought about this. What I'm concerned about is that this goes back to some of the bad days of block funding where you could depend, like, in different ends of the country, you would have wildly different support offered. And this was one of the reasons why we brought in a national disability insurance scheme was because it was very haphazard and, you know, what one person could access in rural Victoria was very difficult, different to what someone could access in Brisbane or in Adelaide, you know, and so I'm concerned that this brings back the scope for, well, we provide this amazing service, but only in this town or this area and to nobody else in the whole of Australia. And that creates, a, again, a new disproportionate way of providing disability supports. Yeah. And it would be a miss to not recognize that as a potential risk. Even some of the, the way that the, the navigator reads is kind of a mix of DES-esque block funded type model. Yeah. Which, yeah, it does definitely have, when we start thinking about, K, the, we've, a couple of conversations recently we've been having in different podcasts around KPIs and how that sort of model sort of how it works within different clinical settings, it, it, we have that same sort of risk around how how drain those things, how much time they've got to be able to give to per person. What about those ones that kind of require? They, they have said they're around the specialist and the psychosocial navigator. And it may, it kind of also does have the sound that you could have options for, for interactions with multiple. There's also accommodation navigator. So it, it like, which kind of sounds kind of confusing for me when we already have kind of one function that does that already. Yep. But the then we also for see the problem. Six different n- types of navigators. Yeah. And 
you you one person might need several of them whereas right now I as a support coordinator can do all of those functions yeah but you also don't get funded enough for it <laughs> most cases like there's not enough hours sure. for you to be able to deal with that and also deal with organizing supports on a thing and then let's hope to god they don't jump into a, an extended crisis sure i think the what would have been better is something like um case managers <sighs> yes i i think they could definitely be a need for that extended case management to continue I, I can't see it. Like, yeah, it doesn't say it, from an NDIS point in view, there does need that function to remain. Because even with navigators, there is definitely going to be a lot of cases that don't fit in with the specialist scope of a navigator and that the navigator will need to refer someone to to manage that. Because the support coordinator doesn't necessarily just deal with singular relationships of that individual. They deal with the family unit, the extended unit, the circles of support around that in individual, the service providers as well, and, and mainstream. And yeah, it'd be interesting, very hard to see the, the, a case manager function not still be required. And I'm not it's not clear how much of a case management function is within the navigator scope. Look, if they come back in within in it and they go, here's heaps of it, it might it might be included. We also don't know right now. So like we were saying at the beginning, it's this is definitely something that will need to be working to advocate for that function to or at least be able to have enough time to be able to extend maybe the scope or have that case management function. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> So another big recommendation that I saw people getting concerned about was the idea of more sharing of supports because it's cheaper and that being a way to rein in some of the, you know, help the sustainability of the NDIS. Now, sometimes I think when someone says, we've got to watch out for sustainability. It makes me very, very frustrated. And, you know, I get a bit of a twitch in my eye. It's like, you know, a first world country should be looking after people with disabilities. Yes. And, you know, to talk about, oh, well, we've got to be sustainable just makes me so mad. It, it, and I, I agree because the, the thing that gets missed in that conversation is the economic return from it. Yeah. Think of the amount of jobs that are being created. It's not necessarily like it, a lot of the times when it's framed in that, it's usually more from a left, a right wing government sort of point of view. And it's, it's never sort of indicated or referenced against it. So, mm. But yes, it, it's. Mm. So what we've done is gathered some quotes and reactions from throughout the industry and disability community um, so that we can give examples to you all about what people are thinking and saying. Every Australian Counts had a statement by Dr George and he said, we are very concerned to see the recommendation to force people to share supports and force more people than ever into unsafe group homes and subject us to abuse and neglect. This will only further embed segregation and is in breach of Australia's responsibility under the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disability. We are dismayed with the pro proposed changes to force us to use registered providers this will impact on our rights to decide who comes into our homes and who provides our support. This is an attack on our right to self-manage our supports and on the fundamental principles of choice and control. The principles of choice and control are fundamental to the NDIS that we fought for and they must be maintained. The right to self-manage and self-determination must be protected. 
there is a serious risk that forcing us to use registered providers will make it impossible to get the essential support we need. People in regional and remote Australia, many of whom have little or no access to registered providers, are at greatest risk. We fought for an NDIS where we are in control of our lives, where we make the decisions that affect us, where we decide where we live and who we live with, where we decide how we are supported and who provides our support. We fought for an NDIS that promised access to the support that we need to be in, in control of our lives and to be included in our Australian community. This promise must not be broken. The NDIS is a vital lifeline for thousands of people with disabilities and our families across the country. It is insurance for all Australians who could be born or acquire a disability. Disability can happen to any of us within an instant. We want to know that support will be there if and when we need it. He's not pulling any punches. No, he's definitely not pulling any punches there. And he, he's definitely smack on the, the nail there with the group homes. Hmm. Uh, we've been down this many a times. And to see it, it to see it coming back again, it, it, it is painful. Yeah. Okay. So I'll read you the next one then. Nicole Lee, who I just think is an amazing person as an aside, um, is the president of People with Disability Australia. And she said the commitment to fund foundational supports was welcome. We know what it was like to live without the NDIS. We do not want to go back to those days. We feel that intrinsically and viscerally. These supports have to be in place before anybody can be offered them. We know that supports did not exist. Well, before the NDIS, they certainly do not exist now. Yeah, and she, she's right, which is why why we're, we've sort of, it's not going to be, can't be implemented until we've got those supports in place. So it, it's she's right. It, it had it haven't existed. There is there isn't a clear plan for it, which is why I'm very excited to see who can come up from our sector and go. This is a solution. Let's start implementing it. Yeah, because if the governments aren't able to do it, we're the ones that've been living, breathing it. Our there's definitely knowledge within the people living in the community, people supporting with it, families that are here that sit, might be listening to us or might have friends sitting down around the beer table going, oh, here's an idea. Let's get it out of the, out of, out of the pub and into governments to start implementing it. So then we can start seeing it because it's, we know that the NDIS has been the only lifeboat in the in, in the ocean, but we need it not to be because not everyone is ever going to be eligible for the NDIS and continuing to fight for that is painful for those families, for the individuals. So the sooner we can have those fundamental supports within the community readily accessible, the sooner that they don't have to struggle. Yes, I understand that well, people under NDIS are concerned that they might lose, things have changed. It, that's not what Bill Shorten was saying. And we're also not saying that it is grandfathered in. There was a whole heap of big sort of commentary around it in, in the National Press Club conference. Yeah. But sometimes the supports don't necessarily work either in certain situations. So we do need new support offerings. We do need new capacity building offerings within schools, within after school cares, within community centre functions. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's definitely um, opportunity for new ideas and or ideas that have been bubbling away in people's brains and they just haven't mm. been able to implement them. Yeah, and it's not like implementing is going to be easy, but having those conversations with the right people is definitely a starting point. Mm. Absolutely. So let me tell you another reaction. Damien Griffiths from First People's Disability Network said the review's strong emphasis on a wider support ecosystem was welcome. We really welcome the recommendation 
of dedicated First Nations schedule, forum and better accountability across all governments to closing the gap. Griffiths said FPDN have been asking for this for a very long time. Through stronger accountability, we can make sure that all the recommendations are designed and implemented properly for our mob. Yeah. And it is very good to see that the emphasis on First Nations within the review, as well as the um, DRC, and where we are talking earlier about rural and remote communities, there's lots of work being done in this to establish ways of working for people in those communities to not actually have to access registered providers or there's, there's special mechanisms being developed to enable people within MOB within that community to help support each other without the limitations that are red tape or as much red tape, especially it's, I'm not hundred percent clear on it. I haven't got a, had a chance to read through it um, yet, but there's definitely an emphasis on working towards rural settings and how we help support first nations people, which is very welcome to see. And I think it's a really interesting emphasis to place. So um, hopefully it is good. <laughs> yeah. And look, I'm still concerned with some of the stuff that I've seen in, in both the DRC and the uh, review. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's still going to take some time to work it out in between because there's lots of different things happening. So you, you sort of need to understand the, the broadened picture as well. Yeah. L. Gibbs from Disability Advocacy Network Australia says the review really tackles one of the things that's been a huge problem with the NDIS which it hasn't been fair both for people inside the scheme but particularly for people outside the scheme. Vaughan Benison from Disability Voices Tasmania I think a needs-based assessment would be far more appropriate than a diagnosis-based assessment because what one person needs who has a particular diagnosis is not exactly the same as what another person needs. Sure, but that is already a part of the NDIS, that you have to give them details of the functioning and not just a diagnosis. So, anyway... It just feels like some people are forgetting that's actually what we already have. But it's it's very, it doesn't, it just disproportionately plays out that way, which is yeah. part of the problem. So where we see people that get overfunded, underfunded, in, in balanced funding overall, and then it's a big chat that the, the rigmarole to go get changes if you need those changes as well is, is too much of a hurdle especially when the plans are done by by a, a calculator in the back end and a planner has to be pretty savvy to be able to get it to give it something decent. <laughs> yes. So let me tell you what the Australian Education Union Federal P President had to say since we have touched on the issue of education. The fragmented nature of the current system makes it difficult for families to navigate and creates additional pressures on principals and teachers in attempting to ensure there is a seamless continuum of support for children with disabilities in schools and in the community. But there are many unanswered questions we have about how a foundational support system would work and what it would cost and how it would be integrated with the school system. Yeah, this is my question. The expansion of public schools to operate as community hubs incorporating a broader suite of not only disability but allied and mental health services would be fully investigated to understand what the staffing, capital and recurrent funding requirements would be. It is disappointing the review did not recognise the barrier a lack of funding currently presents to ensuring every child with disability gets the support and opportunities they need. Right now, only 1.3% of public schools are resourced at the minimum level governments agreed a decade ago they require to meet the needs of all students, including children with disabilities. The number of children with disabilities in public schools has increased 29% since 2015 
and they, they now make up almost one in four students. Yeah, Karina has, has some points there. We know the education systems uh, is rooted. We know teachers are under-resourced. We know schools are underfunded. We know that early intervention and support, uh, family supports are non-existent at the moment, which is why there is a lot of emphasis around that support needing to be implemented, which he definitely, definitely she's right that it didn't probably acknowledge the, the funding resources within the education. I think that might have been a bit of an oversight of the scope there. <laughs> But yes, it's a long way to go there. But I think there is is some work there that the uh, review is targeting to address like that 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 skill shortage as well. And we were talking with Sarah Raffles recently around the value of having those functions within the school. So if we can start to see a way for governments to fund this, we might actually see staffing rates and resourcing at the at the levels maybe a decade and a half too late. Late, but look. Governments aren't perfect. <laughs> but it also, at the moment, uh, like I know for my kids, that mainstream school just is not working for them at all. And no. so this is a huge one for me because I just, I know how difficult it is for the teachers and how difficult it is for the kids. The number one thing I personally would like to see is the end of NAPLAN. I think NAPLAN is an atrocious bullshit thing that should never have come in. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't actually think I had to do NAPLAN, so I haven't had to live through it, so I won't comment on it. <laughs> um, the Shadow Minister for NDIS, Michael Suka says many questions unanswered and stones unturned. The government will now have to outlay which, cha which changes they support and how they plan to transition these recommendations into tangible actions. There is still very little detail on how scheme, the scheme's 8% growth cap will be met. This this guy just said the, like, duh. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, what? Like, of oh, course, look, there are many questions and we need to know how they, which which recommendations they're going to take and, and how they're going to put them into tangible actions. Like, this is, this is like a, a non-reaction. <laughs> look, it's, to be honest, I, I think it's almost the right reaction. <laughs> like, it's, there's... From, and it's also weird from the opposition. Like, there, there's no doom and gloom. There's no, like, he's just letting everyone else do it. He's just going, yep, I don't know enough. We need more answers. <laughs> Look, I'm actually quite surprised. I expect, did, did expect a lot more. But, yes, anyway. anyway. Green Senator Jordan Steelejohn, uh, my favourite. Uh, the rhetoric building up to today has been deeply deeply problematic for many disabled people. I acknowledge that today's announcement is deeply anxiety-inducing and it is an uncertain time for many. Everyone agrees there must be strong services available to disabled people in the community and through the NDIS. However, we know that right now our education, health, housing systems are drenched in ableism. It's going to take years for these services to be operational and work for people with a disability. We will not accept NDIS supports being removed with nowhere for people to turn to. Choice and control is core to the NDIS. With legislative changes expected in 2024, the Australian Greens will ensure choice and control remains at the heart of our NDIS. Today, our community's message to the government is clear. We will not be your political football. We will not accept any changes that make life worse for anyone in our community. Hell yes. Yeah, exactly. And he, yeah. What he said. So, yeah, he, he's calling out a big a big flaw in, in the five-year plan around the health education systems. Government change is not a quick thing. And can't be done in a vacuum. No. You have to change every part of the system, not just this one teeny bit. So yeah, if I if I sort of make an assumption or a commentary on this, mine would be that five years is a very like 
unrealistic time frame. If we work for like if I'm happy speaking to a like a uh, a client right now, it'd be smart goals. Is that a smart goal? Is it timely? I'm not sure if we could if, like if we can get it done in that time. Um, especially with the uh, intersectionality that's involved with this kind of work and the the work that the DRC has to implement as well. Right. So Hannah, that has been a fair bit of commentary that we've run down and there's still a lot of other com- um, comments by people within the sector as well that we haven't been able to touch on today and unfortunately we won't be able to. But yeah, it is. It, to, to sum it up, there, there's lots of change. There's lots of proposals. There's lots of stuff happening. The big thing is, is none of that can be implemented tomorrow or the day after or next year. And Bill Shorten is probably gamming himself if he thinks otherwise. But I, I think fundamentally you just need to be able to take the rest of the Christmas, take the rest of the new year, new year um, to be able to absorb it ourselves, Hannah, so then we can come back next year with our... Um, to unpack the uh, unpack the review mm. and the DRC as well, and but don't forget that you can start screaming at the politicians. And if there's one a particular recommendation or action item or whatever that you are concerned with, please, please, please start talking about it. We won't stop talking about it. But it is that there's some large documents and we want to get this right the when we communicate it with you. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, quite the episode, Hannah. Yes. Now, Sam, we have an exciting thing to tell people about. Yes. Yes, we do. We're going live. We're going to do a live podcast recording show. So what this... Are we actually going are we actually going live live as well? Are no. Live, like, we're just recording oh. live. Okay. We're going to be at the Forest Lake Community Hall on Friday the 19th of January. Tickets are $25. Have a look in the show notes. There will be a link to getting tickets. And what it will be is that you will be able to ask questions of our subject matter experts will be me, Sam, obviously, and our very special guest will be Karen Lorenzon, who you would know from episode nine, but she is amazing marketing guru. So we wanted her point of view for all y'all as well. So you get to ask ask questions as you walk in there will be a way for you to submit your questions and then we will ask them and answer them on the podcast so i can't wait to see you then indeed looking forward to it hannah yes well until next time bye Huzzah. thank you for listening please share with people you know until next time as the green brothers say Don't forget to be awesome.